What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It's time for the fifth movie in our Vincent Minnelli marathon, Lust for Life from 1956, starring Kirk Douglas as Vincent Van Gogh, going away from musicals, going away from melodrama, and getting to our first biopic from Vincent Minnelli. We'll see if it fares better than most biopics. I know it's a genre that neither of us claim to be huge fans of. Typically, we'll see if Minnelli does manage to miss some of those pitfalls. We remind you that this marathon is brought to you by our partner, Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day, they introduce a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. So whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film is hand-selected by experts. And then, if you want, you can dive deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and some critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. So what sort of titles does Mubi have? Well, here are a few of this week's highlights. From 1993, they've got My Favorite Season, a chronicle of familial estrangement. It's been likened to the work of John Cassavetes, in part due to its incisive understanding of the many complexities of family and masculinity. The intimate drama is considered one of the great French films of the 1990s. The Night I Swam is another Mubi highlight. This is more recent from 2017. Joining the pantheon of great childhood films, Damien Manaval and Igarashi Kohai's Japan set miniature is a disarmingly tender and funny tale of adventure that plays with the perception of time and space, putting us in the shoes, snow boots actually, of a six-year-old. Movie calls it an ode to solitude without the need of words. Sounds fascinating. Their choices always do. You can sign up for a free trial and watch those movies now for free by going to movie.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I. I.com slash film spotting. You've grown apart, Theo. Look, you found what you want in Paris, and I'm glad for you. I've found nothing anywhere. I've made one bad start after another, one mess after another. I thought I was on my way here by doing God's work. That was the worst failure of all. But no matter how often I fail, there is something in me. Loud, I am good for something. But this is not the way to find it. Hiding away here. Wasting your time. You've become an idler. An idler? Yes. But there are two kinds of idlers. There's the man who's idle because he wants to be. Out of laziness, how easy that is. I envy him. But there's the other kind. The man who's idle in spite of himself... I want nothing but to work. Only I can't. The aforementioned Kirk Douglas there as Vincent Van Gogh, aforementioned in this marathon, of course, one of the stars of Minnelli's The Bad and the Beautiful. That's James Donald as his brother Theo in Minnelli's Lust for Life from 1956. We get at least a few Van Goghs in this movie, Josh. We might even get a Van Gogh yeah, like, not real like Diane Keaton in Woody Allen's Manhattan. I think we're going to go with the more conventional Van Gogh. Which they also use. They do. <laughs> So we've had a constant. That's the word I've used a few times here throughout this marathon. Michael Phillips has appeared a couple of times, but really helping us tremendously to set up these conversations has been Nathaniel in South Bend, Indiana. Hey, Adam and Josh. I am very interested in your thoughts on this week's film, mostly because I got to say, I am feeling very torn about it. 
For instance, on the one hand, Kirk Douglas's performance starts out very big and stays very big in a way that I just do not love. Also, there are moments when the film begins to feel a bit like an art history lesson, and while I'll confess I kind of personally enjoy those moments in a silly way, I nevertheless recognize that they do not necessarily make for great drama. And then yes, it's definitely a biopic, and one that arguably suffers from some biopic problems, not least in trying to capture too much of the artist's life. Yet, I do think Minnelli does pull off some interesting things cinematically here, and maybe these help make sense of what the film is after. I'm thinking, for instance, of the way the lighting of the film tends to mirror Van Gogh's relationship with light in his paintings, from the early dark images and shots of the mining community and The Hague, to eventually the light of Arl in his paintings, but also reflected again in the movie's yellow-tinted lighting. And then, of course, there are the ways people or images are captured first on film, and then juxtaposed through a simple cut with Van Gogh's artistic rendering of those images, such that we are able to get a better sense of his unique aesthetic eye. In fact, unless I'm forgetting something here, it seems like it's only the paintings that ever really receive the privilege of a close-up, or an extreme close-up. And again, it's through these that we can better discern Van Gogh's artistry, his brushstrokes, and the paint on the canvas. All of which is to say that I think I want to appreciate this movie more than I think I actually liked it. But it's for that reason that I'm really anticipating your guys' thoughts more than ever. So... Are my modern sensibilities blinding me to the brilliance of this melodramatic Hollywood masterpiece, even as I attempt to give it the benefit of the doubt? Or is this a Manelli misstep? In which case, maybe don't tell Michael. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Once again, Nathaniel, a lot to respond to, and we will do that. Josh, are you with Nathaniel that this is a movie that you maybe want to appreciate more than you actually liked it? And through four films here, while you have been let's say, a little bit more reserved in your praise for movies that are considered by many, including Sam, and in the case of Michael Phillips, he thinks of both of these films, The Bandwagon and Meet Me in St. Louis, their masterpieces. You were a little bit more hesitant to praise those films, but you did give them positive grades. So you've been on board with every movie in this marathon so far. Is this actually a Minnelli misstep? You think this is the one where I'm going to jump off, huh? Jump Maybe. off the train. Uh, I can see that because, as you pointed out, it is a biopic. And maybe more pertinent to some of my complaints throughout the years is this is a big performance, which Nathaniel mentions as well. And I think that's probably the place to start. By all accounts, I shouldn't like this. And I'm not over the moon for it. No. But I did come out, again, on the positive side of it. Okay. And I was won over for the most part, by Douglas's performance, mm-hmm. I think it's a match for the material. Yes. It's, it's as simple as that. Not only is Manelli really going for melodrama here as a biopic, but it's a match for the manic, depressive nature of Manelli's filmmaking, which we've discussed with Michael, and the manic, depressive nature of Van Gogh's life. I mean, this was an artist who, from what we know, lived in extremes and experienced emotions grandly and wild swings of emotion as well. And so, you know, look at something like The Starry Night and look closely at the brush strokes. Mm-hmm. They're very dramatic, yeah. right? And so many of Van Gogh's paintings are like that. I think Douglas 
is matching those brush strokes. I think for the most part, it works. There yes. may be a few scenes where you're like, yes, back it down a little bit. We can maybe get to one of the last ones, which I think does not benefit from his style. But I kind of was on board with yeah. him here and felt through him this experience of what it might be like to have this energy inside you that you're not sure how to get it out, how to express it, finding a place and a purpose in art for a while, though that doesn't entirely channel it healthily. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think he just, he captures that well. I'm with you. I appreciated the performance a little bit more than Nathaniel did. There is no doubt a tortured intensity to the performance that starts really from the first time he opens his mouth, even scenes where he is being silent. There's a tortured intensity to it. Oh, that his really, gestures. Yeah. That every movement. Maybe Kirk dramatic. Douglas is the best at in the history of cinema. And overall, I'm a huge Kirk Douglas fan, so I do think it works here. But I will say that it starts there and it ends there. Yes, it gets more pronounced even in its intensity and the angst that he's expressing, but it doesn't give him much range. He he doesn't really get to show any dynamics along the way, and there's not much ebb and flow because he's just at that that max volume. And volume maybe isn't the right word because he doesn't always get loud, but that intensity, the volume of that intensity is something that is just there throughout the entire performance. And yes, it does it does match at least the way Minnelli is depicting Van Gogh, the character Van Gogh, the artist. When I paint a peasant in the field, I want to feel the sun pouring into him like it does in the cold. Is that what you think you're doing when you overload your brush? When you slap paint on like putty? When you make your trees writhe like snakes and your sun explode all over the canvas? With all your talk and motion, what I see when I look at your work is just that you paint too fast. You look too fast! Yeah, and you know... It doesn't have that. Maybe it's not fair to a portrait of someone who is experiencing this sort of mindset or suffering from a similar mental illness to not give us those down moments in a way that's recognizable or human and really give us more the manic moments. Though I do like that one scene. It comes fairly early on. This is where he's been rejected by the church. You know, they can't manage his temperament. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit their strict rules. So they essentially kick him out. He doesn't know what to do with himself. So he's living in squalor alone, and his brother, Theo, played by James Donald, finds him and kind of implies, like, you're wasting your life or you're being lazy. And here's sort of a quiet moment where he gives this great description of depression. He describes himself as a man who's idle yes. in spite of himself. It's a, it's a key line in the movie. Yeah, I, think I love that it. Really yeah, really captures he, it well. He's envious of the person who who can actually be idle, and he's idle, but wants not, not to by be choice. exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yes, not by choice. But those but those moments are few and far between. Uh, and I think this lack of nuance and subtlety, while it works in many ways for the Douglas performance, is also a disservice to the film when it comes to most of the supporting characterizations. Um, the church figures are really broadly drawn. Yes, they are. The people in the art world, the Parisian art yes. world are, I mean, we almost get a Billy Zana Titanic moment of these older guys dismissing Impressionism, yes. right? Yes, and, and that sort of stuff just makes this feel more manufactured yes. than lived in. Um, now, at the same time, there are also Manelli touches like that early proposal scene where Van Gogh impulsively, rashly, and really, you know, rudely proposes marriage to a distant cousin. And Manelli's camera kind of moves in on him mm-hmm. just as he's kind of 
working himself up into a frenzy. So so they're nicely matched at some times, but the movie could have done with a lot more subtlety at other moments. Yeah, and I think that Nathaniel's onto something when he says there are moments when the movie starts to feel like an art history lesson. There's no doubt that that is something Minnelli is endeavoring to do here. And I was reminded of something that Mark Kermode has talked about before a lot. I think he's probably written about it. Listeners of that podcast will know what I'm talking about. He calls it the chubby hmm moment, which is a reference to, I think, a TV movie maybe about Karen Carpenter, where it's the scene in the film where she basically becomes the figure we know her to be. It's when the movie finally reveals the thing we all know about Karen Carpenter to be what is affecting her, to be what defines her. And so it's a moment where I think if I remember the story correctly, she's reading a review of one of their performances and someone refers to her as chubby and she's like chubby. Hmm. <laughs> and, and we all know of course how she tragically died dealing with an eating disorder. And so that's that moment in movies where, especially in biopics, obviously where they feel the need to put a fine mm-hmm. point on, Oh, you know about Van Gogh. Not only did he, he cut his ear off and we get that moment, but Oh, he's the starry night guy. He's the guy who painted this or that. And it feels just a little bit too blatant, I suppose, in wanting to hit you with those kind of moments. And then that even goes back to the other artists and how they're depicted. The moment where we meet Georges Seurat, for example, yes. it's not just Seurat as another artist. He's literally up there putting dots on the Sunday afternoon painting and espousing a bunch of Explaining gibberish his about his, his mathematical formulas and the yes. precision of it, even though nothing of what he says makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> it's almost like it's just this, this stuff that has to be there because anybody watching the film, when they hear the name George Seurat, they're going to think of that painting. So Minnelli's like, well, I'm going to give you that yeah, painting. Then. Right. That, that stuff is pretty stiff. I will say I liked more the recreations of Van Gogh at work. I found yes. some of that sort of exhilarating. When, when it reaches that point where he finds that purpose I was talking about and you know, interestingly recognizes that he can still – honor what he sees as God's gift, the talents that have been given him by not being in the church. You know, he can do that outside of the church in painting by using his gifts that way. The movie kind of hits this exhilarating part where you see him experiencing joy from that. And Mm -hmm. a lot of these scenes are set, and it sounds like this might not have worked as well for you, but they're, they're set in the places where these famous paintings were made. So you see him in the landscape that he's painting. And I I kind of like that it would then work into an insert close-up shot. Uh, Minnelli took images of the actual paintings from museums and then intersperses them with these sequences. It reminded me of last year, this was one of our Golden Brick nominees, Loving Vincent, the animated film Mm -hmm. that used rotoscoping to recreate and bring to life Van Gogh's paintings and what was otherwise essentially a biopic as well. So there's a little bit of aesthetic reinterpretation going on here that I found more interesting than that stiff art history stuff. Yeah, I'm with you there completely. I think certainly part of the fun for Minnelli was trying to mimic those paintings through the lighting, through the mise-en-scene. For me, the best one, and I wonder if you feel oppositely, maybe this is the one you were thinking of, I think the best version of that where we see the reality that led to the art being created from it is the night cafe when he is watching a guy like the bartender playing pool and there's another person sitting at a table and it's a very depressed kind of setting but also very vividly red and the lights are also very vivid and actually in a way kind of oppressive and he's sitting there at the table and 
that face, the torture we see him experiencing, it's all silent. It's a moment where Manelli cuts from his point of view, what he's looking at, back to his face. And it's anguish that seems to suggest that he almost doesn't want to look around the room because when he does look, what he sees is what he perceives it to be through the the lens of if I was painting this. Mm. It, it's like he keeps closing his eyes and putting his head down at the table because he doesn't want to look at it because he can't help but see the world through the the eyes of a painter. And it's actually what's what's killing him. It's it's what's hurting him and destroying him in a way. So watching Douglas go through that silently, trying to trying to stop himself from looking because it's tearing him apart, it's taking too much of a toll on him was one of the better scenes in the movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I like that. This captures this heightened experience mm-hmm. that he may have been living through. And in that way, it does stand a little distinct from Loving Vincent, which puts us in the paintings themselves. And here we're being put in the mind of the painter, which I think is is pretty effective. Yeah. So speaking of big performances, um, we should probably get to Anthony, Anthony Quinn, Quinn as Paul Gauguin. I like him as um, Gauguin. I mean, how could you not? Yeah. It's He's like... <laughs> He's reveling in he's, the size of that. And he's outsizing Douglas, which yeah. I think is interesting hard because it's hard to do. But Douglas is game. You know, yeah. this, this is where he's willing to be the subservient, is, needy Van Gogh. Because he, he reveres him. He and, reveres and, him and, so and much. And he's desperate for wants companionship. A yeah. And you do feel that. And, and Douglas almost makes himself smaller next to Quinn. But man, does Quinn get some. <laughs> Howlers in terms of lines. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm talking about women, man. <laughs> women. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, it's fun to watch, but I don't know if it serves what the movie's trying to do as well as Douglas's bigness. Does. Well, not as well as Douglas, and I would say not as well on the complete opposite end of the spectrum is James Donald, who's an actor I didn't remember on screen. He plays his brother Theo. Obviously a much more subtle performance, but one that doesn't really beg for a lot of attention doesn't call for our sympathy, but is a complicated performance, I think, because we have to believe that he is going to constantly be there for his brother and love his brother and want to bail him out despite constantly being disappointed in him. And I think it's there. The tenderness comes through in that performance. He's an actor who I felt like I'd never seen before. I looked up on IMDb. I've seen him. He's in The Great Escape. He's in Bridge on the River Kwai. I really like both of those movies. I don't know either of them well enough to remember his exact character and performance, but I think James Donald is really good here. And I think this is a case, Nathaniel again says something about maybe appreciating it more than actually liking it. And I think I may be there because why I appreciate it, why I liked it in this case is because I was able to place it within the context of this marathon. And that inevitably happens every marathon with Mm -hmm. at least one movie watching it in the context of these other films that are very much about the professional and the personal and that conflict and identity and your actions defining you struggling against your sort of inner demons cabin in the sky with little joe the bandwagon with the stare having to constantly assert that you know he's just a hoofer he's just a dancer an entertainer he's not this ballet dancer the bad and the beautiful with everyone having their particular vocation and the sacrifices they make and i think this is a movie that's of a piece with the bad and the beautiful they really belong as a sort of double feature because they are about these artists and the suffering that various artists can go through and of course you've got Kirk Douglas playing two very different people. And I think I like that compare contrast because here I would argue that Minnelli makes a case for the personal need 
winning out or dominating the professional desire or the demands of your talents. I feel like this is a case where the Vince Van Gogh we see, as portrayed by Kirk Douglas, if he had to give up painting but knew that in doing so, he would find companionship, his loneliness would be over, he would actually find true love. I think he would do it. Hmm. And so it's interesting to me that Minnelli portrays that character because then you have someone like the Shields character Douglas plays in The Bad and the Beautiful who that would not be the case for. Yeah, it's all about the work. Yeah, and we even see at the end of that movie, we talked about that quite a bit. It's like, yeah, we all suffered for our work and for our art, but look what we got out of it. Well, this movie does kind of end on that note too by showing us all those paintings. I feel like it's Minnelli again. He can't help but kind of reassert the power of the art, even though he's made a movie that actually undermines that in many ways. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's a tough question to answer. But at the end of the day, the art does not fulfill him, right? He's still Mm -hmm. struggling with this illness and finding a way. Maybe the art will, in some instances in his life, diminish that or Mm -hmm. diminish its effects for him. But it's not, it's by no means a cure. I think it also shares in common with the bad and the beautiful, and this is another more nuanced performance along the lines of James Donald, is the character of Christine, played yeah. by Pamela Brown. Yeah, uh, really good. Really good. There's another woman who you could say is dealing with uh, loneliness and alcoholism, uh, much like we see in the bad and the beautiful. And she's this uh, single mother that Van Gogh encounters at another cafe and they find companionship for a while. Um, it doesn't last because his life is just too erratic for her. But in those scenes that they have together, I think she's really effective and gives us, you know, just just a person who you're curious about the rest of their life, even after they've left the movie. And I think that's a testament to the performance when an actor is able to do that. Yeah, I actually thought of this movie in the context of it being maybe an early take on or the first version of what came to be kind of its own genre, which is the rehab movie, the the substance abuse movie. In this case, though, the substance abuse is his art and his his vocation and his his need to pursue that. Of course, no, his his other issue here is he legitimately has a mental illness, but it follows that same kind of pattern of those drug rehab movies where we see the the various fits and, and seizures, which he actually experiences at sometimes, and those moments of clarity and joy where he thinks everything is finally going in the right direction and I've licked this. Yeah. I finally found what I'm supposed to do and I'm no longer sick and I have figured it out this time and then that being followed by those moments of terror. So it's that that constantly going back and forth between getting better, you think, and then actually getting even worse, that series of new beginnings and then really bad, messy endings is really the structure of this entire film. And I found that to be something that did resonate with me. Van Gogh's search for help, which is something I didn't really anticipate the movie portraying, hmm. And how he never gets it. We, we see in this film the best and the worst of men. Think about how many people inexplicably go out of their way to help Van Gogh. They have really no reason to. They should have no faith in him. They hardly know him. And yet they're compassionate. They do whatever they can to help foster his art and really keep him alive. And then we see so many others who inexplicably reject him completely. The outsiders, the other people in the town, his family members, the people around his family who almost see him as a monster because of his mental illness and treat him that way. And I think there's a genuinely sad moment in the film late in the movie when he goes to see that doctor. 
he's resigned himself to needing help and he's left the rehab facility and he's going to see a new doctor and everyone recommends this guy and says he's going to be great. And that look on Douglas's face when he realizes listening to this doctor that the doctor really only is interested in his art and him continuing to paint. Yeah. And thinking that, no, you know what? You can just work your way through this. And at this point, in his life, the Van Gogh character we see, knowing that that's not the case, that sadness on his face when he says, and we hear it in a voiceover, it's an interesting touch, too, here that we always hear Van Gogh's writing, his voice, if you will, but as read by Theo in the letters. You know, sometimes there's that device right. in movies where, yes, Theo's reading the letters, but it's as said by the guy who the wrote author. it. That's not the yeah. case here. We get this story funneled through Theo's voice, but that moment when we hear him actually express that, you know what? This isn't going to work for me. As I said, I think it's genuinely sad. Dear Theo, I've seen Dr. Gachet. He's a pleasant man, and he has some good paintings in his house. He wants me to do his portrait, but as for his helping me, I'm afraid we mustn't hope for too much. When the blind lead the blind, don't they both fall in the ditch? Oh, Mr. Vincent. Not as strong. The one I alluded to earlier is the death scene. That's just, it's, you know, Douglas is going to go for it. And he does. It's like when we pretended to have a big death scene when we were kids, you know, playing war or whatever. Yeah. It's, you're so, it's exactly It's over the top. (laughs) It is. And, and I think maybe because I just love Douglas so much as an actor, I wanted something better there and maybe something a little bit more subtle there. And speaking of subtlety or a lack thereof, there is some irony in, this being a movie where Minnelli gives us a moment where Gauguin and then along with them to an extent Van Gogh, they go to a brothel, I think, and Gauguin comments on a painting that we don't even see and mocks its symbolism. And then late in the movie, Minnelli doubles down completely <laughs> on making sure that the audience completely understands the symbolism of the painting of the guy in the field and how it represents death and what that meant to him at yes. the time. He, with he the just, nun, oh, the he's going oh, to underline that symbolism to make sure that we know it. But there is still something you talked about is service and the way he is trying to find his path in life, those questions of how you serve yourself, how you serve your particular skill or talent, but also be a brother, how you be a son, how you be a lover. The movie explores that. Then add into that, how do you do all that and avoid going mad in the process or succumbing to your mental illness and not let it destroy you? And then there's this added element where he's also someone who wants to do all those things, but serve society as a whole. And he also the movie starts this way and he seems to still be there to an extent at the end he wants to serve god he thinks that's actually what he has to do is be an artist in order to serve all of those different needs and you can see how by minelli setting all of those elements up you can see how that would be a tremendous burden yeah, on this character to, to to bear and he ultimately can't bear it there are a couple other nice cinematic touches there are many in this film actually but the Two parts that really stand out for me. One, just in terms of the overall structure of the film and the look of the movie, the fact that we get these different periods in Van Gogh's life. And, of course, his art is evolving through those different periods. They're all based on the locations and his art being influenced by those locations. And, of course, you expect in a film that is taking place for one-fourth of it in a coal mining town, you expect it to be drab and dingy and dark. And then when he's out in southern France in all its beauty, you expect them to be different, but not as different as they are here. Each one of those four sections has its own look and feel that 
helps us understand, I think, the psychology of Van Gogh as an artist and what he's going through and how that's then being reflected in his work. And probably, you know, the flashiest cinematic moment is maybe the ear cutting sequence, maybe. which is really weird in kind of a good way. But there's a lurid impressionism he employs there where you obviously know what's happening. We don't see it explicitly, mm-hmm. but there's a mirror effect and then a splash of of red that's not blood, but you're not sure, you know, it's more paint. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought I thought that was pretty effective too. Well, and I love a callback and this is really subtle, but I noticed there's a scene maybe about halfway through the film he's in, I think Theo's parlor in Paris. And we see in the background his self-portrait, a famous self-portrait of Van Gogh along with lots of other paintings that are there in the room. And the way Minnelli frames it, he has Douglas sitting at a little bit of an angle. And it's actually as if his face, his nose, is touching himself. It's being reflected in the painting that's behind him. And guess what? That is literally reflected later in the movie. In that moment of anguish, the ear-cutting scene, he is at that exact same angle as he's looking into the Mm -hmm. mirror, and it calls back that exact scene where he's with his self-portrait. He really does look like that self-portrait, too. Yeah. Douglas does here, for whatever that's worth. And I think those opening scenes, as bad maybe as it is meeting the members of the clergy and kind of their pronouncements and how it's acted, it still struck me, Josh, watching it, the economy of the cutting, of the editing there, the movement of the camera in that scene. I think so many other Hollywood directors, not that it's this bravura moment or it's full of these exceptional long takes, but if you watch it, there is a real care in how Minnelli stages those scenes. There are some uses of longer takes than you would expect. And just the fact that the camera moves, it follows people in the space. The activity that happens in the background of that mining accident is another one where we see our protagonist caring for a young boy, but Minnelli still shows us all those different extras in the room Mm -hmm. and the struggle that's going on behind him, never letting us lose sight of that, that it's not really about what Van Gogh is going through or this one boy, but this larger struggle that also felt like some of those Minnelli touches that we've seen throughout this marathon. Lust for Life is available to rent or stream on most platforms. And actually, I think I can go ahead and legally say this. It's on YouTube, the entire movie, a pretty decent looking copy of it for free. It looks like it's a licensed copy of Lust for Life. We will link to it in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. If you see this movie or have seen it already and want to weigh in, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So you're hearing this just a couple days before our full episode with Tasha Robinson airs. We're going to talk about Ready Player One and share a top five list on that show. And then the next week, we will have Michael Phillips back on. For the third time in this marathon, he's going to weigh in. We'll talk about Some Came Running, and that will close it out. And then we'll get to our awards here, Josh, when you return from all your gallivanting across the country and all these book tours. We'll see which moments and which performances stood out to us as the best. Should be fun. Thanks, as always, to Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire 
Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.